This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 37 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am really delighted to be joined by one of the most remarkable actresses of her generation, Jennifer Jason Leigh. She began her career 40 years ago with an uncredited bit part in a movie directed by her stepfather. Over the decades since, she's embodied an independent spirit of the sort that many talk about, but few have the discipline or drive to maintain. Shunning opportunities that might have made her an even bigger star... She instead has always gravitated toward quirky and eccentric and interesting outsiders. In the 80s, there was Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Last Exit to Brooklyn. In the 90s, Single White Female in Georgia. And in the first decade of the 2000s, there was The Anniversary Party, Margot at the Wedding, and Greenberg, among others. But by the 2010s, she was working less often and reportedly down on her luck as an actress, a single mother ready to limit her involvement in the business to screenwriting. But then, in 2015, came two of the best roles of her career thus far. In the first, we never even see her face. Instead, she provides the voice of a character brought to life through stop-motion animation in Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson's Anomalisa, for which she's received a Best Supporting Actress Independent Spirit Award nomination. And then came calling Quentin Tarantino with perhaps the role of her lifetime as the only woman among an all-star ensemble cast in The Hateful Eight. For her excellent performance in the controversial part of a woman being brought to her death by some truly rough characters, Lee has already been awarded the Best Supporting Actress Prize of the National Board of Review and been nominated for the Best Supporting Actress Golden Globe, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, and Screen Actors Guild Awards. And finally, after a few decades longer than she should have had to wait, Jennifer Jason Lee is now an Oscar nominee. If you want proof that you can have a career without compromising your dreams and standards, you've come to the right place. Because that much becomes very clear over the course of our 50-minute conversation, which we'll go to now. First of all, thank you very much for doing this. I'm sure you're sick of me after the last few days, but <laughs> I appreciate you I've seen stomaching you it. Yeah. <laughs> Just to begin with, you, in a sense, entered the family business, right? Your father, Vic Morrow, was a terrific actor. Your mother, Barbara Turner, is a terrific screenwriter. And your stepfather, Reza Badi'i, was a terrific director. Well, I mean, the truth of it is that it just seemed like that's what people did when they grow up. Because that's what my family did and a lot of my friends' families did. It didn't seem like some far-off dream or some world that was difficult to get into. It was just kind of, that's what the industry is in this Mm -hmm. town, you know? I didn't realize how difficult it actually is to crack into this business. And I think that naivete sort of served me well. And once you did start to pursue work in it, you made an interesting decision, which was to change your name. Why did you do that? This is not the name you were 
born with Jennifer Jason Lee? No, I was born Jennifer Lee Morrow. Lee um, was spelled the same way as I use it today. Um, I, you know, again, it's like very naive, but as a child I, or as a young adult, I really wanted to make it on my own, and I didn't want to go into a casting director's office with any help from my dad, you know? I, I don't even know if it would have helped that much in retrospect, and people, some people probably knew anyway, but I really liked the idea of making it on my own. Mm-hmm. So as you were developing this interest, it was junior high school, high school, when it started to become a real focus of yours? Oh, it was always a focus of mine. It's always what I wanted to do. I was also really shy and introverted as a kid, and so it was a way for me to make friends, really, Mm -hmm. and come out of myself, and suddenly I was very bossy, and, (laughs) you know, the director and the writer of these different plays we would do, and it was very easy for me to be with people and to make friends, and I just, I just loved acting. I loved disappearing into roles and all of that, so, but my mother wouldn't let me um, take an acting class or get an agent or anything, and till I was much older. I think the first acting class, and this was me like begging every year, the first (laughs) acting class I ever was allowed to participate in was the Lee Strasberg Institute, like a summer program for kids when I was 14. Okay. But she wouldn't let me do anything younger than that. So what was it that transpired very shortly before you graduated from high school that sort of uh, was a really like defining turning point for you? Um, I got a role. In a B horror film called Eyes of a Stranger, which, funnily enough, Quentin Tarantino has a 35 millimeter print of. <laughs> <laughs> so that was his first exposure to you, maybe? I don't know if it was his first. It may well have been, but he certainly, I know that he owns it. The dilemma, in a sense, there for you is if you take that role, you cannot continue in school, right? That was no dilemma for me. Not for you. (laughs) For your mother, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I spent most of my formative years at Oakwood, which is a school I love so, so very much. But then after 10th grade, all of my close friends left and went to Palisades High School. And I became emancipated. Um, Legally, so that you could... Yeah, so that I could live in my own apartment, which did not exist in the Palisades, ergo go to Palisades High School. But I didn't really have my own apartment. (laughs) I still lived at home. Um, I had done a TV movie when I was 16, and so I had bought a car. um, And I drove every day the 17 miles from Hollywood to the Pacific Palisades to go to school, wherein I would write my own note saying that I could not attend school, and then I would drive to Westwood and go to movies. So that was really, the last two years of my education really was just like going to see The Deer Hunter and right, right. <laughs> Days of Heaven. And um, and then I did, I got this movie. I was starting to go out on auditions. I got this movie, and I promised my mother I would take the GED, but I, I did not fulfill that promise. <laughs> hey, you know, I think she can't really complain how it transpired after that. And I mean, pretty soon after Eyes of a Stranger, I believe, is when you landed the project that was the first time that you did something that you've done many times since, which was really dive deeply into a character, right? And this would have been the best little girl in the world for TV. Maybe you can, first of all, explain what that part entailed, and then also how much of a deep dive it was in terms of getting into it. Well, that was um, it was really, I think, the first uh, movie or TV movie that... Um you know, really looked at anorexia nervosa. Um, and I think it was written by Stephen Levenkron and by, based on his book. 
And I, uh, my best friend in high school had had that. So we had been friends since really nursery school. And it was very disturbing for me. It started, I think, for her, I feel like it started in fifth grade. And it went until ninth grade. Mm-hmm. She's fine now. Mm-hmm. She's good, healthy now. Good. But um, it was terrifying to, to witness that. And, and um, so I felt very close to to it and I it was very hard for me to understand so when this came about and I was up for it it was something I I really wanted um I wanted to portray this girl and I wanted to understand what happened to my friend and then I didn't get it Jodie Foster got the role but then um the Screen Actors Guild had a strike and so she by the time the strike ended and everyone was allowed to go back to work, she went to Yale. So and the strike the actually benefited. It, <laughs> benefited, it, it benefited yeah. many actors, <laughs> yes, yes. and me in particular. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was a performance that really impressed people. And I wonder if it had anything to do with the fact that just a year later, you did a project that people still love and watch uh, regularly to this day, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, with one of the most amazing I don't know who the casting director was uh, or if it was Amy Heckerling, the director that really picked you guys out, but it's an incredible group, and I just wonder how that came about and why you did it even though some discouraged you. Well, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just, you know, I thought it was brilliantly observed. Um, I just loved the script so much and um, thought it really captured what it's like to be a teen in America today and the mall culture and and all of that and coming into your sexuality and not knowing what to do with that and um, the role of Stacy, she is such a good girl but she has very few boundaries in a way and the movie's also very funny but it's also poignant you know and it deals in a very honest way with teen pregnancy and abortion you know these are topics that just they come up in movies today but no one gets abortions in movies today that is not PC so really ahead of its time in a lot of ways well it was of its time and we've gone backwards in so many ways you know so that's sort of interesting to look at in that way and it was also it was kind of brilliantly cast I mean like Phoebe Cates and I are still best friends that's great (laughs) and we met on that film and our relationship is still very similar to the relationship in that movie everybody seems to have gone on to great things from that but uh, from playing this relatively good girl character that you're talking about afterwards that there weren't too many other roles where you were as pure and innocent as that character i mean starting i guess with with flesh and blood for paul verhoeven here you're a woman who's gang raped and goes through horrible stuff and often your characters that you've played over the years since experience very dark stuff and i just wonder for you if you were to stop and psychoanalyze for a second why you're drawn to the parts that you are do you have any thoughts on that well, one of the reasons is because they're the most challenging to act and they're, they're, mo- they're the most fun to act because they're the farthest away from my own experience and from who I am. I mean, I don't like a lot of drama in my life personally. I like things to be pretty sedate and easy. And I've always, I mean, by nature, I'm more of a people pleaser. So it's great for me to play someone that doesn't care about pleasing anyone right. or is very ambitious or is very courageous I'm not courageous or 
is unafraid. I'm not unafraid. You know, like all these things that I'm not. It's fun. That's what acting is in a way. It's pretending to be all these things that you're not. And it's also a way to communicate things about yourself that are private, but a way to communicate nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, it was just a way to sort of examine those different kinds of um, experiences and different kinds of psyches without actually becoming them, you right, know? Right, And one of those things that on a number of occasions you did get to play in the movies was practitioners of the sex trade in one form or another. There was Trala first in Last Exit to Brooklyn, and then over the years, Susie Wagner in Miami Blues, Lois Kaiser, the phone sex operator in Shortcuts, Stevie and The Machinist. Those sorts of women, you did not play as victims or as one shouldn't necessarily feel sorry for. You brought a lot of nuance to parts that, yes, it's the oldest profession in the world, some of what these women did, but it's not as black and white as it's often portrayed. So I guess starting with Tralala in Last Exit to Brooklyn, who, again, for people, you know, a prostitute, gets gang raped, goes through some horrible stuff. How did you approach that and those kinds of parts? They're all very different women. I mean, they do share... Uh, uh, profession that is the same or similar Mm -hmm. but um, they're very I mean like Tralala and Susie Wagner from Miami Blues couldn't be you know at farther ends of the spectrum I mean they're just very very different Susie Wagner is closer a lot closer to Stacey Hamilton than she is to you know some hardened hooker and Tralala is you know she's trying to survive and she's you know, the sad thing happens to her where she kind of falls in love, you know? Like, she's protected herself her whole life, and she's young, but she's got this sort of shell around her, this armor that's really about as thick as an eggshell, but it gets cracked, you know? And um, she falls in love with a soldier, and she thinks her whole life is going to change. But unlike Pretty Woman, it doesn't change. Right. You mentioned Pretty Woman, and that's a project that you went out for but did not end up playing the part, and I think you're quite happy not to. Can you explain the distinction between that person who was in this sector of work and the ones that you did play? There was something that turned you off about that. Well, actually, the script of Pretty Woman was a lot darker. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, actually, Pretty Woman is really a fairy tale. I mean, the, the movie as it was made is a fairy tale, and it's completely enjoyable, and it's utter entertainment. It's a slight but it, sometimes you might, you know, view it as a recruitment film. But uh, <laughs> it seems like all your dreams right? will come true. Yeah, if you blow just... jobs on Hollywood Boulevard and see what could happen to you, it could happen to you too. But basically that's, I mean, what happened was I read for it and the director said, you know, uh, okay, let's let's try it again. And just remember she hasn't been doing this that long and this is still a lot of fun for her. So let's do it with a little more twinkle. And it was like, really, it was a scene that where she's just given like this older guy a blowjob in the back of a car on Hollow Boulevard. That's not really that much fun. I would, in my imagination, that doesn't seem like, you know, a really fun, no like matter twinkly. matter how new you are yeah. to the <laughs> to Seems kind of scary. Right, and, right. Um, yeah, probably a little bit terrifying. One thing that I guess first came up with Last Exit to Brooklyn was sort of the secret to finding a way into a character. In that case, I think it was the walk. Is that something that with every project, every role, you you can identify something that's going to be a key to the character? Um, I can't always identify it, but I do think there is usually one thing that locks you in. And yes, I mean, the walk and last exit happened to be 
documented. It's in the novel. Um, it was something that Uli Edel talked to me endlessly about. And um, it was actually Hubert Selby who helped me find it. Because, I, I mean, literally, I worked with choreographers. I, I studied walks in movies. I worked with dancers. I mean, I just tried all these different ways. But I, I, I couldn't find it until I was just sitting with him one day and he just explained to me where it came from and that, it, you know, the walk was about rage and it was about trying to lure these guys into a back alley so that they could get sort of conked on the head by the rest of her gang and they could rob them. And once I understood what was behind the walk, I wasn't thinking about my hips or my feet or anything. I was just, I had the motivation and then the rest just followed. One of the amazing things is that from around that time through well into the 2000s, you were putting out a really good movie with a really good performance almost every year, sometimes multiple every year. And you. then you took a little time off. But I mean, with, with that run, first of all, there are just so many that people still love to revisit. And I wonder if we can just toss out a couple and ask you to, to talk about them. We can't cover all because we'd be here all day. I wish we could. But to begin with, Rush, where... Certainly, you'd already been directed by a female before with, with Fast Times and Amy Heckerling, but with Lily Fanny and, you know, does it make a difference to be directed by a woman? You know, I really don't think so. I, I just think it depends on the individual, you know. Um, directing is such a mother load, and um, all the women directors I've worked with have been... I mean, like, Lily was quite amazing, and Amy Heckerling, and, you know, Jane Campion is a genius. But it wasn't their being a woman that it was their take on the material and their vision. They're the director, and the director, to me, it doesn't matter really what sex they uh -huh. are. It's what they do with the material and how they envision the film. A male-directed project about a female protagonist that everybody is haunted by to this day is Single White Female. And I wonder for you, in this case, I've heard about just like the lengths of preparation that you did to inhabit the mind of a character who's a little bit, I don't know if twisted is the fair word to say here. I, don't, I but think it's fair. it's fair. She's damaged. She's damaged. Quite damaged. Um, yeah. So what did that entail? Because you certainly terrorized Bridget Fonda <laughs> and the rest of us. <laughs> it's funny, but I, I had been doing like a lot of research and like reading all these different books on people who are very disturbed and then I was watching a 60 Minutes episode but none of them were young very young people and then I was watching a 60 Minutes episode about a young analyst named Les Foreman and his work with children that had psychological problems um, and it was very moving and I somehow or other got his number. He was out here in California, and I visited with him and spoke with him at length, and then he introduced me to some twins who were both in a psychiatric hospital and had been separated. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they talked to me at length and let me record them, and, and then I met a few other patients of his that were really open with me, and that's, you know... You really feel um, privileged to be let into someone's trust in that way. And it's very helpful mm -hmm. because if you can ask somebody a question and you can look at that person and, and watch them and hear about their lives from their point of view and what's happened to them from their point of view, mm -hmm. not from somebody else's editorializing right. it. it, 
It gives you a lot. Like, um, I, get, I can get a lot from a photograph, painting, a piece of music, but when you're talking to someone that's lived some of what your character has lived, it, mm-hmm. I mean, compares, it's, yeah. yeah. Speaking of photographs, though, with Single White Female, you became a dressing room decorator, in a sense, with some Bridget Fonda images, is that? I did, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why was that helpful? Because my character so badly wants to merge, you know, she wants that twindom, and, um, She's she's found it in this woman, and so I did a lot of like taking pictures, and you know this is before Photoshop, mm-hmm. so it's all done sort of by hand. Mm-hmm. She's clearly obsessed with this woman and wanting to become mm-hmm. her and mm-hmm. be her, and so uh, there were ways of like merging the photographs until suddenly it's just me. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very um, odd and spooky and disturbing, even to to do to cut the photographs yeah. in half in that way. Robert Altman is somebody that I believe you knew through the family from your childhood. You worked with him twice, Shortcuts and Kansas City, and your mother wrote the great movie The Company, which I don't know if it, it wasn't his last, second to last, right? Mm-hmm. But what was the experience of working with him like? Because he's considered one of the greatest ever, also one of the greatest actors, directors. From what I gather, it was an enjoyable experience, and on the second one, kind of funny, at least the way it's Yeah. I mean, obviously, every actor loves Altman. You know, I I think you'd be hard-pressed to find one that didn't. He's He truly loves actors. He loves what they bring. He actually would tell you, especially like with the phone sex worker, Lois, you said, you know, this is a blueprint. It's a skeleton. There are no flesh on these bones. You go out and find it. And I don't even want you to tell me what you find. I just want to be surprised. I want to see it on the day. And so he has some way of just having the camera just follow you wherever you go, you know. I basically cast my children. He wanted my children to look at me as their parent and take direction from me because that's how your children, you know, that's one way to make kids really respond to you. And I did. I went to all these different phone sex places and recorded the conversations. I didn't do the conversations, <laughs> but I record. I listened in and I right. recorded them, and all the dialogue in the movie is based on those. In Kansas City, where it's sort of the world of jazz and all of that, you show up on set. Did you pick up right where you left off on Shortcuts? Well, I showed up on set and um, walked over to Bob to say hi, and he, you know, he was very sweet, and he said, "Hello, could you go get me a cup of tea with a little milk in it?" And I said, "Sure," and I went and I got it, and then I brought it back to him, and then. I stood there for a while, and then he <laughs> suddenly realized he thought I was a PA, <laughs> so he didn't um, recognize me at all. But um, for Bob, I just I think I really came alive more for him when I was you know when I was acting. Like he, I think he felt that I was a bit boring or dull, perhaps when I wasn't acting, but when I was acting. Um, something else sort of took over, and I and I don't I don't necessarily disagree with him. I was also always, as much as I knew Bob, and I did know him from being from when I was very small. I was always a little bit in awe mm-hmm. of him because he's just bigger than life, you know. And he's so brilliant and so kind mm-hmm. that I can get really really shy and very very quiet and. Um, so I'm not sure that that's always the case with me, but it was it was probably the case with Bob. And it's a pretty great compliment that you can take on a different persona, you know, in his view mm-hmm. when you're on screen. But 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 1994 was a pretty crazy year in a sense because you were doing such a variety of things. You did a Coen Brothers movie, The Hudsucker Proxy, and then another one of several. We're not going to be able to go into all of these, but Dorothy Parker, I think, was one of the best performances that you know anyone's given in a long time in Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle. And I just wonder how the voice and the dialect can be such a essential thing to understand somebody you're playing. Well, here's something else that's interesting about that. I was playing Lois, the phone sex worker, where I was doing a lot of phone sex calls um, for, you know, on the set of the movie that were being filmed. I want to make sure that's clear. (laughs) Um, And there was at at our rap party, Bob said, I want you to meet someone. And he brought me over to Alan Rudolph and he said, "Um, Alan, meet Mrs. Parker. And that's how Alan and I both found out that I got that Wow, wow, wow. Because <laughs> Bob was producing the movie. That's great. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, so the finding the voice, it's just interesting that you mentioned voice, and there must have been something about my voice that Bob recognized that I certainly didn't recognize. I had never even read poetry aloud before that role. Um, there are several recordings. I feel like you owe it to the person. If you're playing someone that actually existed, and there are tapes of them available, that it's kind of... You just, out of respect, you try to duplicate that as closely as you can. They existed. They were real, and it's available. So I, I did the best that I could, and I I worked with um, a great dialect coach, and we scored the albums. We scored the interviews. Like, I took down every single word and gave it enough space so that I could, I could uh, make notations like a musical score, and I... I would sleep with a cassette, you know, next to my bed and just have it go over and over and over on a loop. Exactly. So, and I just talked like her all the time. (laughs) Which must have been interesting because that's not a way too many people speak. Matthew Broderick said he never understood one damn thing I said the entire shoot. (laughs) Um. (laughs) But I mean, that kind of commitment and then even things that, you know, just for non-actors, I think it's interesting to think that staying at the Algonquin or yes. uh, things like that. All that really kind matter. of research. Yeah. For me, you know, I my mother is uh, is just research crazy. Like she can have, my mother's a screenwriter, as mm-hmm. you said, and she might have a construction worker in a screenplay that has one scene. She will spend maybe a week with that guy and tape record him just for one page of dialogue because she wants everything to be accurate. She wants to be able to talk about the way he holds a cup or, you know, if he stirs it with a pencil, whatever. he wants. She wants it to be true. And she instilled that in me as an actor. 
and all of my love of research and all of my love of finding the truth and the intensity and the reality of the psyche and all of that stuff all comes from my mom. I'm glad you brought her up because the role that I think in a lot of ways, maybe up until, maybe even after Hateful Eight, that you have said meant the most to you in a lot of ways was the one that you did with your mother, Georgia. And obviously a great movie, the one that I think up to that point you'd received more accolades for that than any other People just really loved it, and I wonder if you can talk about how you sort of recruited your mother to make it possible. Well, obviously, I'd always wanted to work with my mom. When I did um, Single White Female with Barbet, that was actually the first time I ever got paid a large sum of money. Um, I mean, actors always get paid well, but this time I was paid very, very well. (laughs) And so the first thing I did was call my mom and say, I want you to write a screenplay, and... I'm going to pay you to write a screenplay. And that's kind of a great call to be able to make, you know? And I had an idea of something I wanted to do, which was loosely inspired by my older sister, who had had a rough go. And um, and also my desire to work with Mayor Winningham, who I had met at Isamata, which was this arts camp for kids. And she was, you know, the older girl who starred in all the shows, sang, had the voice of like an angel and was so kind to my whole group of friends. And we were younger and, you know, you always think like the star or whatever is not going to have time for anyone. But Mary's just such a warm person and such a kind, good person. And then she started starring in all these TV movies that my mom wrote. And so then they became very close. And so I always thought we could play sisters. And I came up with this idea, and my mom liked it. And she wrote it, and then Mayor played Georgia. She played my sister Georgia, and I played the younger sister, Sadie Flood, who wants to be, you know, a great singer, but just lives right on the edge you know she like wears her her nerves are all on the outside and she just doesn't have the coping skills for life the way Georgia does and Georgia's very successful but you know her albatross is Sadie in the course of doing that did you realize something special was going on and set aside humility like I'm talking about your performance which people have really talked about ever since I mean did you get that it was unusual for me it was it was so personal Um, the story because, you know, because of my mother's writing, because of my older sister's life, because of my yearning to understand my older sister, and because of physically what I had to go through, and because the stakes were so high. I produced the movie. I raised the money for the movie. I mean, it's just, it really became my sole focus. I dropped down to 89 pounds, you know, junkies don't care about food so I had to sort of turn that sort of switch off in my brain you know and I think Sadie revs I mean she's just she lives in such a state that she's probably just burning through calories anyway and that I mean I didn't obviously do drugs but I did lose a phenomenal amount Mm -hmm. of weight and I really lost myself in the role in a certain way I mean it took me a while to like get strong again after that but I I do love the movie very very much and it's meaningful to me one other type of movie I've got to ask you about because it was something unlike I think anything you had done before and again with the female director Agnieszka Holland was this idea of period kind of costume drama which is so far from I think anything up to that point that you'd done and this is in Washington Square which a version of that had 
been made before the heiress with Libby de Havilland. She won an Oscar. It's a great story with a fascinating female protagonist. And in that case, do costumes affect the performance? I think the costumes really help inform a performance. You know, you sit differently in a corset than you do otherwise. And I also realized in doing that film and in doing Hateful Eight as well that if you don't wear a corset, you can't you can't carry the clothes. Mm-hmm. They're just too heavy. <laughs> but again, like that, doing Washington Square afforded me the chance to immerse myself in a completely other time and learn so much about the mores of the day. Um, and I love... I love all that kind of research. And I remember one day we were going to do, there was a dance, but there were no gloves. And that just would never, ever happen. You you can't, no one was allowed to touch skin to skin, you know. And so I remember just showing Agnieszka my research. Not that it matters in the scheme of things, but it does inform you as an actor. And then she went and she she got gloves for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So as we entered the 2000s, you did two movies with Noah Baumbach. Mm -hmm. And first of all, we should say it wasn't just acting in them. It was really getting them off the ground in a lot of ways, writing and all of that. So Margot at the Wedding in 2005, Greenberg in 2010. What were those experiences like? You know they were great. I, I love working on both of those movies, yeah. and I'm, I'm proud of them. Yeah. You know, we had a we we did we had a really good time making them, and I and I think they're really interesting and unusual. And um, I'm happy to have had those experiences. Does the fact that in some cases a character is unlikable in a way? I mean, everybody can approach it with their own perspective. But whether it's Greenberg in Greenberg, or in some ways your character in Margot at the Wedding is not the most lovable example of a parent, right? Right, but I think Margot's the more... Margot's worse. It yeah, all Margot's worse. Yeah, it all pales next to Margot. Right, but is that something that you think about even? Is I it... never think about likable or unlikable. Yeah. When I'm writing, I don't think about it. When I'm acting, I don't think about it. In life, I think about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it's harder there, to get away with There be the glory right, in right, acting. Right. You don't have to concern yourself with any of that. Right. And the truth is, if you really get to the heart of somebody, you're going to... Find something you something. connect to, whether you want to or not. Right. Even you know? The worst villains have something. Yeah, human. that's and that's the beauty of acting in a way, is right. like finding that and communicating that. Over the last few years while raising your son, you've worked a little bit less regularly than you had in the past, and you've said in other interviews that you even got to the point of thinking about winding down your acting career altogether. And one of the quotes that I came across, you said, quote, I really felt like I had said a graceful and completely happy goodbye to acting in a significant way. I love acting, but I'm a mom and the roles just weren't coming because of a mixture of things, because I'm not ambitious and because I'm older and I had a baby, so I didn't want to work for a while. Close quote. So can you take us through that thought process that this is something you've done for decades? You were really, truly ready to walk away from it. Well, it wasn't as finite as it sounds, but I was accepting what I was living, which is that, yes, rules were not coming to me, and it is true, I am not ambitious, so I don't call my agents, I don't pester them. I love being a mom, and that's, you know, incredibly gratifying, satisfying, and it does take a lot of your focus and your time, you know, it is, like, Mm all-consuming. I just, you know, I was just sort of getting roles to make money, but there was nothing that I was really loving. And it didn't feel the same, 
you know, it really didn't. It didn't have that kind of intensity or passion. And um, yeah, and I just did think like, I've had a great run and that's, and I'm lucky. I'm really fortunate to have had that and worked with these great directors and it's, I'm just entering a different time now. Maybe I'll write more and, and I had sort of made my peace with that. And then basically here we are with a year in which two of your most amazing performances came out in the same year after you reconciled with that notion. So let's talk about how this happened first with Anomalisa, which was something that you had dealt with a decade ago. How did that first cross your radar, and then why did it go away? I mean, it was something Charlie wrote for uh, a piece called Theater for the New Ear. And originally he did a different piece and it was done at BAM in New York with a piece by the, um, coexisted alongside a piece with the Coens wrote. Mm-hmm. And then they wanted to bring it to Los Angeles, to Royce Hall, but the Coens couldn't come to Los Angeles, so Charlie needed to write another piece. And he wrote Anomalisa, and he wrote it for me and David Thewlis and um, Tom Noonan. Um, and I loved it when I read it. I mean, Lisa's like just one of the most beautiful characters I've ever read and so sweet and so lovely and I just couldn't even believe that he thought of me but I was thrilled and we did it two nights at Royce Hall I just have to ask you did you know Charlie before this yes okay yeah I knew Charlie a little bit before this but it was only we rehearsed for a week in New York and then we did it for two nights at Royce Hall and then it was over and I was so sad that it was over because I really loved playing her then Charlie and I would speak, and I'd hear rumors that it might go to Australia, you know, to Sydney, the Opera House, and that was exciting, but then that wouldn't happen. And, you know, and I kept wanting to do it again. And then eight years ago, he called me and said that we were going to do it as a stop motion animated movie. And I thought, oh, that's a great marriage for this material. Um, and I was so, so happy to do that again. But again, a very long wait, because that does not happen overnight, stop motion. No. And in fact, Charlie and I would have dinner um, in, you know, during the two years after we recorded the, the, the voices for the movie. And there were periods where he said, we're not going to be able to finish the movie. We've run out of money, and I don't know if the movie's ever going to get done. And then, in fact, he finished it, and, you know, we went to Venice, and it won, like, the Grand Jury Prize of Venice, and, you know, it's just this beautiful little masterpiece, and it's kind of an incredible, I mean, that movie's this incredible journey, but it is insane for me to have that movie and Hateful Eight come out within a week of one another. (laughs) One last thing before we talk about Hateful Eight, what is it like acting only with your voice, especially in some very, you know, intimate situations, and then also singing, which is not something you publicly do very much from what I... Mm-hmm. I loved it. I mean, when we did it at Royce Hall, it was a theatrical piece, so there was an audience and they could see us. When we did it for the movie, I mean, obviously a lot has changed in eight years, but we were in a, a dark room. For you or for the character? Or how do you oh, mean? the character remained the same. There were a few okay. things different, like the, you know, on television, it's my man Godfrey in the movie. And on stage, it was uh, Casablanca. And the song um, changed for the movie. From which to which? It was the song from the Titanic. Oh, yes. Uh, My Heart Will Go On. Yes. (laughs) And it went to Girls Just Want to Have Fun, which, strangely enough, is um, much more poignant Mm -hmm. um, and much more right for Lisa. 
And it really was happenstance because we couldn't get the rights for My Heart Will Go On, you know. Right. And you as a person, you felt that it was a different experience doing it all these years later? It was. The the, the uh, performance didn't change, I don't think. I mean, like, my Lisa is still my Lisa, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like my interpretation of Lisa is still the interpretation. But my life experience, you know, I when we started it, I had just gotten married. And when we recorded it eight years later, I was divorced and a single mom, you know. So mm-hmm. was very kind of a lot had happened to me in those years and yet I could fall into Lisa so easily. I understood the ending for Lisa in a, you know, a more significant way perhaps, but I also love how she still has so much hope and for her that was still the most beautiful weekend of her life, you know. Speaking of people that see the world in different ways than most of us, Quentin Tarantino is definitely there's something that his brain works differently than the vast majority of the rest of us because not too many people can come up with that kind of material. So I got to ask you, when was the first time you heard the name Quentin Tarantino? Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And only two years after that, you both happened to be in Cannes because that's where Pulp Fiction premiered. And there were only two other American movies in competition that year, and you were in both of them, Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle and Hutsucker Proxy. And from what I've heard, because he would go to all of the movies when he was there, he became pretty enamored with you at that point is that what you've heard from him as well um i've heard yeah i've yeah i've heard that a bit from him yeah that um that was a like a a big deal like that festival this guy took his time 21 years (laughs) later finally you guys collaborate on the hateful aid and so how did that first cross your radar and did you immediately realize that it was sort of a, a, a special thing yeah i mean when you get called to coming an audition for Tarantino it's incredibly exciting honestly I couldn't believe it that um when I got I just got an email from my agents just saying that um mm-hmm. you know I was on I was on a list of women he was interested for that for the role of Daisy Domergue um and I went to go pick up the script but it was missing you know the last chapter um but I was so excited just to get the meeting and to get the audition because I really did feel kind of off the map a little bit you know but for Quentin, he was referencing flesh and blood when we talked. You know, for him, it's not, what did you do the last two years? You're your entire body of work, and that is present. And that's a rare way to see the world, you know? I think part of it's just that his brain is so on fire. Like, he remembers, I mean, honestly, he remembers every episode of The Virginian. He can tell you what <laughs> commercials played. He can tell you who the DP was. He can tell you who guest starred. So he just, he knows more about my career than I do. <laughs> But he would talk about moments in different films of mine. Literally, he did reference Flesh and Blood mm-hmm. in in reference to Daisy for one specific scene in the movie. And um, it was so refreshing because it just reminded me that my work had meant something to someone mm-hmm. and to someone that I greatly, greatly admire, you know? And, and that's a nice feeling because you don't really know as an actor. You don't know if things stick or, you know, because... In this town, I'm not even saying this in a negative way. It's just that memory is short, mm-hmm. but n- not with Tarantino, you know. And I remember even my brother-in-law said to me one day, you know, when I was saying, you know, I think I'm going to get more into writing, blah, blah, blah. And he, he was saying, you know, all it takes is like one call from Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> and I just kind of laughed because <laughs> what's the likelihood of that? It's amazing that he said that. Yeah. Everybody knows he's a great writer. 
not everybody knows that he's a great director. And I think that that side of things, it sounds like in your experience, manifested itself in just one assignment that he gave you. Oh, right? in terms of being a great actress director, you mean? Yes. yes. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, because everyone knows he can move a camera like course, nobody's of business. Course, yeah. As, a, yeah. as an actress director, he is, he's a genius. And he, he works in these very subtle, interesting, beautiful ways. First of all, he just makes every actor on that set feel so loved. What he did for me, which is, again, talking about that one thing that locks you in, is he had me come to Telluride supposedly for a hair and makeup test. But when I got there, I was just sent to where he was staying. And um, he said, oh, you know, I don't really need to do a hair and makeup test with you. I know what I want you to look like in the movie, but um, I'd like to play you something. And Quentin, nothing is digital. Everything's analog. So he took out a record and he put it on a turntable. Right. He played me this song and he said, you know, I'd like you to play that in the movie, um, sing and play that on a guitar. Do you play guitar? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, well, I think if we get you the right teacher, I have faith that, that you'll be able to do it. And um, the fact that he said that and had that faith in me, there was no way that I was not going to give him what he needed. There, I, I just would not fail him. And it was not an easy piece to learn. It's finger-picking on both hands. I'd never even held a guitar before. And it really locked me into Daisy because there's a lot going on with Daisy that she does not want anyone to know about. She has a lot of secrets. And some of the secrets are secrets about her vulnerability mm-hmm. and her terror, not knowing if she's going to survive. And it's really life and death for her. For me, learning this piece of music <laughs> felt like that. Felt a little bit like that. Yeah. I didn't want to know. I didn't want Quentin to know that I wasn't sure I would be able to ever do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had a hard time learning the guitar, I and I didn't want him to know I was scared and um, vulnerable and all of those things. So it ha- I, I suddenly got her inner life so fiercely that I never had to think about anything. Daisy was just alive in me and um, just what he wanted, which is he wanted us to just find her together, to find her slowly, to not have any preconceived ideas about her, but for her to be really alive and mm-hmm. for everything to be just like breathing. And, you know, he wanted every line exact. Right. And he demands a lot of you, but he also, within that, it's so much fun to be on his sets. Despite the fact that you guys were freezing in Telluride, that you're the only woman on the set, that you're basically chained to another actor for the whole time, my sense from having spoken to you before is that it was actually a blast. It was. It was really, it was probably the best time I've ever had. And I've worked on movies like Mrs. Parker, Anniversary Party, like... I've worked on movies that I never wanted to end. This one, I really, truly never wanted to end. Like, I still... And the whole thing about being recognized for something that I loved so much is phenomenal. But it also keeps it alive just a little bit longer, which is so lovely for me. What is it that would make somebody like Kurt Russell, who doesn't need to go and lie around as a corpse on a set for a few days, to keep insisting on coming back to do that, chained to you, because he didn't want to miss anything? There's something about Quentin's dialogue. It's his set. It's his sense of joy. It's his love of filmmaking that is absolutely infectious. And Kurt Russell is just the greatest, greatest guy. I mean, I can't imagine another person in this world doing that for me. Three weeks he lay on that floor for me. And it was cold on that floor. (laughs) And I couldn't have given the same performance. It's a very different thing acting with, you know, just a stuffed dummy than (laughs) acting with this man who's been basically beating you and keeping you in chains this whole time, but also 
protecting you. A lot of people are sort of aggrieved on your behalf about the violence that your character is subjected to, and they say Quentin's a misogynist, but you wouldn't have done this if you felt that way. So what's the response to that? Oh, I, I, I mean, he's so not a misogynist. I mean, he writes the best, some of the very best roles for women right. that have been written. And his women are fierce and strong. I mean, she, Daisy is no victim, you know, and there's nothing sexist about it. It's like he's treating her exactly the same way that he would treat a male prisoner were he bringing him into, I mean, I'm talking about John Ruth's mm-hmm, character. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot said about that. They never sexualize Daisy. You know, they don't treat her any differently because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. And if you're a misogynist, you don't write such great parts. I mean, I've had so many women come up to me after seeing the film feeling so empowered by Daisy and enjoying her so much and her strength and venom, you know? Absolutely. Well, finally, in 1992, Movie Land magazine ran a profile of you in which it referred to you as, quote, future Oscar winner Jennifer Jason Lee, close quote. And then time after time since then, the Academy, as shocking as it may be for people to think about, and I say that sarcastically because they're certainly taking their flack at the moment, but like they dropped the ball clearly on numerous occasions. So how special was it then to get this information? I don't know how you got it, but that finally... You are actually Oscar nominee Jennifer Jason Lee, and you know it just took them a while to figure it out. You know, it just it feels incredibly sweet. It really does. I mean, to be recognized at this time in my life, I feel like um, this movie is so significant. This year is incredibly significant, and also at a time in my life where I didn't expect any of this, and so it is absolutely lovely, and I'm I feel very happy and grateful. Thank you so much for talking about it and congratulations. Very exciting. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.